Good morning, Your Honors. Counsel. May it please the Court, Aideen Momo from Stinson LLP, on behalf of appellants Eric Sorensen and Melanie Forner. We are requesting that this court reverse a district court's dismissal of the appellant's claims in their entirety with prejudice and remand the case for further proceedings, including trial on the merits. We have presented four issues on appeal, but for purposes of my argument, I would like to focus on two, standing and the dismissal with prejudice. For the first, we have an issue of first impression an agent who was given a power under the power of attorney. She abused that power, and why shouldn't she be accountable to the ones she owes the duty to? The question here is, are you going to leave Eric and Melanie, who clearly have an interest in the CD's funds, without any remedy at all? The well, district she offered to pay them the money, and they wouldn't take it, as I understand it. She offered to pay them the 108000 your Honor, the Eric and Melanie are bringing forth claims of civil fraud and civil theft. As a simple analogy, if someone steals a bracelet from a store and then brings the bracelet back, are they still not guilty or, in the civil sense, liable for theft? Same thing with fraud. Wait, just wait, I think I think proving loss and damages. Essential to a civic, civil claim. It is, Your Honor. Your hypothetical: there, there may be, there may be a prosecutable offense remaining after the victim is made whole. That isn't saying that there's a civil theft claim. Your Honor, we also have the issue of civil fraud, which is based on constructive fraud, based on the statements and misrepresentations that the appellee, Joanne, had made to Eric Sorensen with respect to the existence. See, that has nothing to do with the power of attorney. I frankly think the power of attorney is, is, is a misfocus in this case. Your Honor, the, the power of attorney and the CDs themselves need to be looked at together. Just taking a step back. Wait, the power of attorney, everything that she did in a court is consistent with the power of attorney if if she's if her explanation I, I did it to I did it to get the money where it didn't get in the way of further care for David if if that's if that's true there was no, no violation of the power of attorney the power of attorney is when when she kept the money after David died right Th that is incorrect, Your Honor. That is our position. That, wait, it, wait. That's incorrect. Why is it in? <laughs> if no, you're I'm wrong, it's not our position. Well, tell me why it's wrong. If I may, Your Honor, what you're arguing, what you're stating is similar to what the district court did below. The district court performed a four-corner analysis of the power of attorney, wait, wait, which... That's not answering the question. I, I'm, I'm getting there, Your Honor. Our position is that th that's not the starting point and certainly isn't the ending point. There is no authority, certainly not in the unpublished decision Auburn Manor or any case that says when you're determining third-party beneficiary status that you look solely to the four corners of the agreement, the POA, you also need to look specifically at the CD. So from oh, wait, a practical... Wait, wait, wait. You're, you're saying that... a, a a suit for for breaching a POA because you didn't you didn't act 
the POA required action consistent with the, the principle. Correct, Your Honor. And the action taken appears to be not inconsistent. And so you're saying it's, you can't look at anything other than the four corners? Come on. Well, we say that it, the actions that Joanne, as the, as the power of attorney took, were inconsistent with the decedent's intent. What before, the, before refusing to turn over the money? What was inconsistent with either the face or the, the um, stated or intent? So, Your Honor, and if we have to be very careful because in this case, this has a really unique procedural posture and oh, yeah, that it was dismissed and, with and the motion to dismiss. Anyway, we'll get there. So, I, I'm just looking at the facts in the first amended complaint, and we have to accept them as true for purposes of the appeal. Eric and Melanie allege at various points in their first amended complaint that, looking at uh, paragraph 10, for example, their father, David, invested and funded two certificates of deposit that were intended to be for the express benefit of and use by his natural children after his death. Eric, oh, Melanie. So, so you're, now we're, you're sticking to the four corners of the power of attorney. Right? No, I'm, I'm not, Your Honor. That you told me I can't, I can't go outside them with my, with my questions. Your Honor, I'm not, actually. I'm referring to the CD. The power of attorney, which I'm holding up here, which was in the record at EC. The power of attorney gave her the power to be, be a co-owner of the CDs. Your Honor, when you're looking at the power of attorney and the powers that are designated therein. Is that wrong or not? Don't keep changing. You know, it, is, it is wrong, Your Honor, because if you look at Minnesota statute section 520. You're saying the power of attorney did not authorize, David did not authorize um, the, the defendant to become a co-owner of the CDs. He, he allowed for that. What he didn't allow for, as Eric and Melanie allege, he didn't allow for Joanne to take the money that was from his own family's history to then take those funds away from his own biological children and put those okay. funds into her own personal account so his children had no access to them. You're just making my point. It wasn't, it didn't, she did have the ability to take the funds and move them where they could, where they, because they were getting in the way of getting assist, other assistance, no, third-party assistance. No, Your Honor. If I may. No, what? If, if I wrong may. Factually or wrong? Factually and legally, if I may. Okay. Minnesota statute section 523.21 states, in exercising any power conferred by the power of attorney, the attorney, in fact, shall exercise the power in the same manner as an ordinarily prudent person of discretion and intelligence would exercise in the management of the person's own affairs and shall have the interests of the principal utmost in mind. Right. And her explanation of why she did it is, does not violate that. But, Your Honor, that's a question of fact. All that's right. a question of fact. But, but, it, but it's not, you know... That's a question of fact, and that's why we're here, Your Honor. The, wait, wait, uh, what, what remedy does that get you? A fair trial, Your Honor. Of what claim? You see, the whole problem here is that when, when, he, when they were pro se, they asserted the wrong claims. Yes. And you came in and said, there are better claims here, and I plan to move to leave to amend. And then you, didn't buy, and then you did not comply with District of Minnesota 
rules that say if you're going to do that, you've got to make the motion and you've got to submit your amended complaint. You, allowed, you said I'm going to do this and you didn't. I, I'd say you. I don't mean you. This is what I, the record we have. There's a representation that that would be done. It was not done. And our cases are, we have many cases that say then you're stuck, then you're stuck with the, the uphill battle of a post-judgment motion for leave to amend. That, to me, is the way I see this case. Because conversion and unjust enrichment were, I think, the, the tenable you know, claims here. Not civil theft, not fraud. Your Honor, conversion, you can call conversion constructive fraud. That's, they're almost two peas in a pod often. But, you did, but, but the right claims weren't presented. So now what, what do we do with the case? Your, Your Honor, I respectfully disagree. Still sticking with the issue of standing. I stepped into this case as pro bono counsel to avoid an injustice. Eric and Melanie, when they were pro se, did their very best without counsel to bring this action and to plead their claims. And when I came in and my firm came in, we briefed in opposition to the appellee Joanne's motion to dismiss, and we awaited oral argument. The district court said, not a chance. When we got involved, Your Honor, contrary to what you had stated, we did not attempt to amend the complaint. Mel Melanie and Eric had already amended the complaint. Is there a representation that wasn't made? Your Honor, if you, if, you, if you look at the docket and the record that we have designated in this case, Eric and Melanie had already amended their complaint. So in our papers, we refer to it as the FAC. That is the first amended complaint. They had amended the complaint. Yes. In that very document, they asserted claims of civil fraud and civil theft. Now, there may be an issue as to how they... Do you know they... what I'm referring to in the record? Excuse me? Do you know what I'm referring to, the representation that um, we intend to amend? We... Yes, Your Honor. Well, what's a... Just... All right. Sure. When was that made? Was Is it in a transcript? I read it. You're right, Your Honor. That... So... That's... So why do you run away from that? Because that representation was made in the briefs, both in the motion to dismiss stage and also on appeal, but not with respect to, as advocates, just we have the ability, once we represent clients, if we're given an opportunity to look at the case again and to assert any claims where there's sure, good faith basis. But aside from that, if the court were to have dismissed the lawsuit without prejudice, then me stepping in as counsel, I would have looked at the complaint and I would have made it easier and clearer perhaps to identify the claims that Melanie and Eric were asserting for the simple fact that if you look at the first amended complaint, which is in the record, there's various language that's crossed out, language that actually is particular to the claims that are at issue here, civil fraud and civil theft. It's it can be streamlined, it can be made clear for the parties as well as for the benefit of the court. And that's all that I was representing to the court that we would do if given the opportunity to do so. Aside from the fact that we could add claims, there really is no need. The claims that were pled, they have standing to do so. And if I could just, uh, I'm about to get into my rebuttal time, uh, but if I can just speak 
quickly with respect to the power of attorney itself and then turn to the certificate of deposit. This, the power of attorney as a form, as a document, you don't see beneficiary designations attached to that document. The document is simply a form, and people use it to go to other parties to show that they have particular powers that they have to follow. But when you look at the duties and who are those duties owed to if they're not followed, in this particular instance, which is a matter of first impression, you go to the certificate of deposit. And again, it's a question of fact, but Melanie and Eric allege in their first amended complaint that their father had designated them as beneficiaries to his CD. The district court could have looked to secondary authority. It could have also looked at persuasive authority in Pennsylvania in the relic case that would have allowed them to decide and to predict how would a Supreme Court in Minnesota have decided this case if the matter was before them. And had they done that, they would have seen that by the fact that the father had designated Eric and Melanie as beneficiaries to the certificate of deposit, which they allege, and we have to assume that that is true, that gives them standing. The court in Relic found it. The secondary authority, the restatement of trust, as well as Scott as trust, suggests the same. Your Honor, uh, I see that I'm coming further into my rebuttal time. I would like to reserve the balance of my time for that, if I may. Sure. Thank you. Mr. Anmore. Morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, Tom Antmore on behalf of the appellee, Joanne Sorensen. Um, coming into this case after the dismissal was ordered um, and looking at what this the district court did uh, is very impressive because it cut through all the uh, chaff and got to the heat of the matter, uh, the heart of the matter. Um, this was a, a very difficult First Amendment complaint to read through. There were a number of exhibits submitted by both sides, and the court took great pains to get at to the main core of the First Amendment complaint, look at it favorably for the plaintiffs, and give them every reasonable inference, and still came to the right result, which is this case can't proceed. And the simple reason is that when you have a power of attorney, and it gives the uh, attorney, in fact, the right to transfer funds to herself. And it does not have any statement that there is a third-party beneficiary who has to be dealt with. That ends the case. And it doesn't matter what happens with the certificate of deposit. Because if you give the person who has the power of attorney the right to put their name on that certificate of deposit, that ends the case. In your view, do we have to reach the question of standing? Well, uh, no, I think there's a failure to state a claim. Um, I think the analysis is kind of the same between the two, and I think the, the district court uh, went both ways for that reason, and that is 
there is a failure to state a claim because the POA gave her the right to do what she did. There's also a standing issue because they are not third-party beneficiaries under the power of attorney. And so the person that, the people that would have had the claim were the estate of David Sorensen. So, so that standing, yes, and it's also a failure to state a claim. I don't, I don't, you can go either way, either way. But the point is. So if, if a, if a. I mean, a power of, a, of attorney makes you, give, makes you a fiduciary. Yes. And if, if acting as a fiduciary to David, she acted contrary to his intent, you say it's crystal clear there's no standing of the, the third-party beneficiary who's, who's victimized by that to sue? I don't think Minnesota law has gone there. Actually, actually I think... I think if you read the Auburn Manor case and the way it analyzed, a, analyzed it, Minnesota law does go there. And the reason is, in that case, that power of attorney expressly stated that you're going to, that attorney, in fact, you're going to use my funds to pay for my medical care and my treatment. A third party can recover as a beneficiary of a contract if he can show that the promisor intended a benefit under the contract. Quote unquote, from that, Auburn Manor. That's correct. Here you that's here they I cannot. Do. That's just what I said. Here they cannot do that because unlike I'm, the. Okay, you're talking facts. I'm. Ta I was addressing your standing argument. Right. Auburn Manor does not eliminate if the right claim is pleaded. Well, okay, if the right claim were, were pleaded, perhaps. Now, now yeah. civil theft is a whole other question. Right. Right. And. Fraud may or may not be a whole nother question. Fraud might be actionable, but it probably isn't on the face of it probably isn't on the face of the power of attorney. No. And it's not as but pleaded. If if she consistent with the power of attorney, made herself co owner, and then withdrew the funds, if she did that to make them to make to aid to, to come to his assistance with his terminal illnesses. By making other benefits available, right? That's not inconsistent. No, it is not. But if she if she then keeps the money after he dies, I don't think that, that we're, we're arguably we're beyond the power of attorney. Uh, but if we're not uh, if we're not beyond the power of attorney, then she has acted inconsistent with his intent, his other intent, which was to leave something for these kids. She's victimized them. Well. And, they're, and you're saying they're, they're, uh, Auburn does not say in that situation they don't have a cause of action. It doesn't go that far. It, Which is why I said do we have to reach that question. Well, and as I say. You had to come back to it. Yes. But here's, here's the problem with the analysis, with all due respect. If the power of attorney gives her the right to put herself on the certificate of deposit, then the fact that they are beneficiaries under that certificate of deposit is irrelevant. No, but his intent is not irrelevant under the statute that's been read to us this morning. But the evidence of his intent is that he gave her the right to transfer his funds to her. That, you know, this four corners, that, that's just nonsense. You, in these cases, you go, you, what's the subjective intent? 
And yes, you may have to have a trial on that. The sub, you might, but under the case law, it's the power of attorney you look at. What did the power of attorney do? Well, that's why I said at the start of this, I think the power of attorney has been, is a misfocus in this case. And all our argument is doing is convincing me even more of that. The power of attorney is where is what they're alleging. The, that's, that's where, where the breach that's is. That's where your client's fiduciary duty arises. And that's where they're alleging the breach occurred, that she used the power of attorney to put her name on the contract for deed. That's what their allegation is. That's why we're addressing it. That, that's, that's, that's focusing the claim around the power of attorney. But the power, that's of, attorney, what the plaintiffs the power of attorney can put you in a position to breach the fiduciary duty it, it reflects in other ways. It could. It could. But they, here, they're... Here, here, frankly, I hear there's a good chance it did. But their allegation is that the power of attorney is what she used to change okay, the, the result. They're supposedly promised inheritance. Which, by the way, is just a mere allegation in the complaint. And I understand we're dealing with their allegations. Well, there are allegations of admissions by those speaking for your client and, and your client. And I will note also in response to Judge Malloy that, the, in fact, she did pay them. Oh, I know. She paid her yeah. 84000 right. Yeah. right. Not both, not both CDs. Well, they're only, there's an issue as whether they're both two CDs, but I thought, yes. I thought we have a banker who said it was, she closed it out three days after Eric inquired about it. That, no, that's not what the bank, the banker said. I, well, I, so the, the banker, well, okay, let's, anchor, oh, okay, so we'll, we'll give, we'll give her a, we'll give her, give them a trial on that. Anchor Bank said there was no CD. Southtown, I think it's hey, Southtown. Where, where do you, where? That was a, uh, as part of the record, there's a letter from Anchor Bank saying there was no CD in 2015, 2016. There, this CD, the CD they're claiming at Anchor Bank never existed. Then what was the banker talking about? I don't recall. Who said she closed it out? That was Eric Sorensen relating what a banker, he said a banker told him. There, there's no, yeah. <laughs> that never happened. Well, so is it all, you're doing, all you're doing is convincing me that it's a reverse with all of this fact stuff. That's why I'm focusing on the power of attorney and the language in it. That's their claim, is the power of attorney. This, it, it's not a factual-based claim. They, they don't have third-party beneficiary status to make the claim. Wait a minute. The claims are fraud and civil theft. Right, based they're, on the power of attorney. Well, based on, that doesn't matter. You base, you know, you go into a suit when you file a complaint, and you base it on what you've got then, and then we have some discovery, and it winds up to, you know, it does, it morphs, as every case does. They they have no actual misrepresentation claim. She she told them the truth. Why she made? Why she she put herself on the CD? After David Sorensen died, she started paying them on the CD, and almost all of it was okay, paid over to them. Now we're in the facts. Well, well, no, we we're in the allegations. We know, we know what to do with facts. We're in the allegations and why the allegations don't state a claim. That's what I'm, I'm talking about. These, they don't state a claim. There's no, they didn't rely on anything. I don't think Iqbal takes much to plead a fraud. 
Well, you have to plead fraud with specificity, and, and they did not. And, and they did not. And so what we're taking is a, the most favorable view possible of this First Amendment complaint, and we're saying, look, they don't have a claim. They allege she, she got the money for, for one stated purpose and then used it for another. That's um, she got somewhere between an uninten unintentional misrepresentation and, and common law fraud. I mean, the, the claimed misrepresentation is, that, is, is her explanation of the reason why she put the uh, CD in her name as well. Right. Yeah. That's, yes. I guess I have two questions. One is I, I'm a little puzzled, and I don't know if you have an answer for this, why there's even this dispute about whether there's a second CD. Why can't that just be resolved? I mean, there either there is or there isn't. I mean, I, I don't understand why there. Your claim is there's just one CD. It's worth about $150,000, right? $108,000, and most of it has already been paid over to the plaintiffs. Okay. And you say there is no second CD. So why can't that just be resolved pretty simply? By finding out? Yeah. Well, I think it was. The problem is that we're here on a motion to dismiss, and so we're going with what the allegations are. But if you look at the history of the case, they went to mediation. I think these issues were, in fact, sorted out. Okay. Uh, and there is no CD2. Then the second question I have is, I, and this probably is more directed to the, to the appellant than you, I have some real problem with the uh, assignment in this case and the reservations as to whether or not uh, that really creates diversity jurisdiction. Um, what's your view about that assignment? Yes, and so we argued, uh, Your Honor, that that was a collusive assignment. And, and Well, let's assume it's collusive. Yeah. I, uh, but what, I, what I'm more concerned about is the things he reserved. Right. Uh, especially the claims against um, your client's estate. Right. And really what that is, he's reserving his right to go after the very same thing that these plaintiffs are going after here. And that is, if, if they don't recover here on these claimed CDs, they'll belong to, theoretically, Joanne. And Joanne can do with them as she w will under her estate, give them to heirs, and that's exactly what Paul is reserving. He's not assigning those claims. And what it is is the, I don't know, 20th bite at the apple. That's what they're doing. They tried to sue in small claims court in California. That didn't work. Now they're bringing a new claim here, same issues, same, same dollar, uh, same, same CDs. And if they don't win here, they're going to leave. Paul's going to save it for him at the end of the day. That's what that's all about. And that's why they're we think it's collusive. They're going to what? If they don't win in this case, Paul, Paul has reserved for himself the third, fourth bite at the apple. That's what that assignment is doing. It's, it is not a flat-out assignment, uh, unreserved assignment of the claims. He's keeping them for himself in case this case doesn't go the way they well, want well, counsel, did, I mean, the district court didn't make any findings on that, though, right? I mean, that's, that's your position. But isn't that a fairly complex analysis so, uh, that, the, that the district court has to perform in order to reach that conclusion? 
Um, it is uh, a somewhat complex analysis under the cases, and I think the air, airline or air, air, airline recovery case um, that we cite uh, goes through the steps. But I think I don't think it's a a real. Uh, I think this court has everything it it needs to do the same analysis. That there's no not going to be any additional factual development. Um, the fact of the matter is that. On the face of this assignment, with the cover, with the signing letter, you see all that you need to see, and then um, you can make the analysis set forth in the airline recovery case. And that is, namely, were all the assigned claims actually assigned? Was anything reserved? When was this done? It was done in response to a challenge to jurisdiction. So that's. That makes it presumptively uh, collusive, uh, and, there, and the consideration seems to be lacking in this one. So I think this court has everything it needs to, to do the analysis, and I see my time is up, and unless there are more questions, uh, we ask that you affirm. Thank you. Thank you. For rebuttal? Yes, Your Honors. If I could respond to the last question about the assignment, there are a couple issues here. The district court properly concluded that, assuming that at the time this lawsuit was initiated, Paul Sorensen was an indispensable party. He no longer is an indispensable party, and diversity jurisdiction now exists. That was on page 13 of the memorandum of law in order. With respect to, let's assume that that was incorrect, was there an assignment that was manufactured? Even if that's the case, that's a question of fact. That's an analysis that has to be applied under 28 U.S.C. 1359. And if you look at the very case that Apelli relies upon, Airlines Reporting from the Second Circuit in 1995, the court said in that case that there are certain kinds of diversity-creating assignments that warrant particularly close attention. In other words, there are assignments that are presumptively conclusive. He said that this is an example of one of those assignments. It's not. The court said parent-subsidiary assignments and assignments between parent and subsidiary companies. We're dealing with individuals. The presumption doesn't apply here. And even looking at the facts of that case, that case is distinguishable. Initially, there was a motion to dismiss. An assignment of claims occurred by the plaintiff after the motion to dismiss was filed. The court then looked at the diversity among the parties on both sides and decided based on the assignment at that time that there was diversity of jurisdiction. After that, the parties engaged in discovery, which did not happen here. And after the parties engaged in discovery, the defendant found facts supporting a basis to renew the motion to dismiss on there being a lack of diversity jurisdiction. And it was only then that the court found below in, in the Second Circuit that there was a manufactured diversity jurisdiction, which ultimately was affirmed by the Second Circuit. We don't have those facts here. Again, this case didn't even get any sort of discovery. So to the extent 
Paul and what Paul wrote in his letter and what he meant by that. And of course, he wasn't represented when he wrote the assignment of claims. Whatever those terms mean, those are all questions of fact. What's your position today on this issue? Our position is that the district court got it correct. On the issue of assignment, the district court got that piece correct. So we have no issue there. And then I I wanted to, I see I'm out of town, but if I can respond to another question of Judge Malloy's, and then I wanted to uh, have some closing uh, Argument, if I may. No, you, you've, no. What, you, are you? I see that I'm out of time. I just wanted to. I'll give you one minute for closing. I, you made some relation. You want, you, you want to answer two or three questions and then have a closing? No. I understood, Your Honor. I'll be brief. Just with respect to Judge Molay, your question about why can't the issue of the, the second CD be sorted out? Certainly, the parties were ordered to a settlement conference by Judge Davis. We were ordered to settle before Judge Schultz, and there was discovery taken, but it was reviewed in camera. So the appellants, Eric and Melanie, never had access to the bank documents. So there still is a question as to whether the CD1 is the same as CD2. Again, there was no benefit of discovery in this case. And then lastly, with the issue of the dismissal, with prejudice. Just looking at the facts here and the statements from Appellee's counsel uh, stating that my client, Eric, made a comment. Appellee counsel said that that never happened. That very back and forth with your, your honors shows that dismissal with prejudice is a harsh sanction here. The PR also to suggest that the PR could have brought the very same claims that Eric and Melanie is alleging is futile. The PR, if you look at the will of David Sorensen, the PR that's named here is Joanne Sorensen herself. To suggest that Joanne would have brought claims against herself would be a conflict of interest. So Eric and Melanie did what they're doing now. They brought their claim. They're trying to have their day in court, and that's all that we're asking for. We ask that you reverse the district court and remand for full proceedings, including trial on the merits. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. It's a complex case with a lot of history, so the argument has helped to sort it out. We will take it under advisement. Thank you, Your Honors. Does that complete the morning's arguments? Yes, Your Honor. Very good. Then the court will be in recess until 9 o'clock tomorrow morning.